you're new to Jubilee Church, my name is David. I'm one of the members here. Good to see you. I'm frequently asked almost every week if I'm on staff. I'm not, but that would be scary and encouraging at the same time. But I take it as a compliment. I am a member here, and it's uh, good to see you. Jubilee Church is one church in three locations, but it's getting ready to be a fourth location in Kirkwood, Missouri in September. And uh, we're really excited about that. So just to say, it's a really exciting time to be a part of this church and where God is leading us and where we're going. I'm just overflowed uh, with joy just to be here this morning. And if you've been uh, keeping track, we've been going through this sermon series that we've effectively called Jesus' Stories. What we're doing is we're taking various parables from the Bible and we're taking time to explain and expound on them. If you're new to the church or if you're new to the Bible, a parable in its most concise definition is a small story that tells a big idea. It's a small story that tells a big idea. They can be confusing to understand. That's why it's helpful to study them and understand them in its totality. And that's why we're going through them uh, as a sermon series. If you, if you look in the Bible with respect to parables, you can find some in the Old Testament. A lot of them are in the New Testament. Most of them are told by Jesus. And all of them, in one way or another, have to do with something of salvation. Uh, today we find ourselves in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Like if we did a vote in St. Louis of just like random people and asking them about stories in the Bible that they've heard of before, chances are that anyone would have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is in fact probably the most popular parable in all of Scripture right behind the parable of the prodigal sons, which is found in Luke chapter 15, if memory serves me correctly. This, po- this parable is extremely well known. Yet for years, it's been misunderstood, misapplied, and misused in more than one way. Myself, as I was studying for this text, I got assigned the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Really excited. I'm like, I know, I know that. Got it. And then after about 20 minutes of looking into it, I realized, wow, I know nothing about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? Super meaty. And there's a lot of content um, in this parable. The language of Samaritan, right? Like if we use the language of Good Samaritan... Uh, in the foyer, or if someone calls you a good Samaritan, you kind of know what they're talking about, right? Like if someone calls you a good Samaritan, what they're trying to say is that you're a good person, right? You're loving, you're kind, like you show up to church on Sundays with treats, right? You give good hugs, you don't give the Christian side hug, you know, you don't do any of that, right? You're just, you're, you're a nice loving person, right? We've, we've used this parable over the years, um, almost in the church has, that is, uh, we've used it in a forceful manner, almost to make people feel guilty, Like we look at it, we uh, negate and neglect the dialogue and debate with Jesus and the religious scholar and we hop right into the the parable and we say, hey look, don't you see this guy, he was robbed and a Samaritan came and helped him out, you need to do the same. You need to go help poor people, you need to move to Africa, you need to do overseas missions, go, 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 go. And as a young kid growing up in the church, I would hear this parable and I felt guilty Like, I'm not doing enough, I need to do more good works, I need to do more stuff for the church and more stuff for the Lord. But if you take a look uh, at this parable closely, you'll find that social justice is one of the points, but it's certainly not the main point. Social justice and taking care of the point is not the main point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the question becomes, what is? If this parable that we've looked at as a church for so many years and perhaps not looked at it totally correctly, it's not about serving people. What, what really is it about, and it's um, essentially at its very core? 
Well, if, if you take a look at the text in the book of Luke, as Luke the physician writes, really detail-oriented, um, we find that in this parable, it's essentially answering two questions. The first question is by the religious scholar or the lawyer in verse 25, where he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The second question is, who is my neighbor? So the point of this parable is answering those two questions, and we'll start in verse 25, where the lawyer Excuse me, where Luke writes, and he says this. He says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, don't get confused by the word lawyer. When the Bible says lawyer in this context, what it's talking about is a religious scholar or like an Old Testament theologian, right? So he's probably memorized the first five books of the Bible. You and I can't even memorize the book of Third John. Like this guy knows. He knows his Bible really, really well, right? And he's very, very acquainted with the scriptures. Yet he stands up and he asks the question, hey, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Back in that day, if you stood up to ask a question to a teacher, it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of dignity. But that's not what this lawyer's doing. He's corrupt and prideful. Because we, how do you know that? Well, it says it explicitly in verse 25. He stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test. He's not asking because he wants to learn. He's not asking to inquire. He's not the kid in class who stands up to ask his teacher a question out of politeness. He's that kid in class who stands up who's a class clown and trying to make the teacher look bad, right? And, but Jesus, throughout the Gospels, if you look at his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, bio, uh, the Gospels of Jesus in those four chapters, you'll see that he, um, crowds followed him. Right, he did so many awesome things, so much fruitful ministry, preached a lot of times, healed a lot of people, and religious Pharisees and scribes would see that and they started to get jealous. And they saw him and they would try to trap him and ask questions and hopefully he would say something wrong. That way it would warrant his death, but Jesus never messes up. He's never rude. He's never off-putting. He's never harsh. He never says the wrong thing. You can play chess with Jesus, but you're not going to win. Right, so this guy, he's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to get him to fall. He's trying to get him to say the wrong thing. And he asks, hey, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right, that's actually a really good question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Like, if you had a short list of questions that you needed to get answered before you die, I hope it's on the list. Right, like, so he's asking about eternal life. This is deep. He's saying, hey, look, how can I get into heaven? How can I have a right relationship with God? How can I make sure that I not go to hell? How can I know Jesus? How can I have this eternal life? How do you do this? How does this thing work? Right? The, the reality is, is that this is a good question, and if you get this wrong, it, it really doesn't matter what you get right. Like if, you're, if your career goes well, if your GPA turns out well, if your marriage turns well, if your kids turn out how you want them to be, that is outstanding, and we should have goals and strive for those things. But in the same sense, if you never come to realize why God created you, you'll miss out on your design. Paul says in Colossians, Paul went from uh, being a, a murdering Christians to becoming a murdered Christian himself. He writes to a church in Colossae, and he says in verse uh, 16 of chapter 1, he says, hey, all, all things were created by God and for God's glory. Like you were created for God. You were created for eternal life. You were created to have a right relationship with your creator, right? So he's asking this question about eternal life. Though it is a good question, if we look at it closely, there's still a small problem with the question. The problem with the question is the word do, 
right? So he's like, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? If you grew up in the church, if you're burnt by religion, if you kind of had bad experiences growing up because you felt like you weren't doing enough, it's, it's common to see that, right? Like you're not the only one who's experienced that because every, every other major religion says that, right? It's like, hey, look, you need to give us your money. You need to give us your time. You need to pray five times a day. You need to reach certain levels of enlightenment. Hey, do Scientology. Give us your money. Climb the ranks of Scientology only to leave more empty than when you came. Sit in a weird fetal position and say, um, all day long. Do this, do that. Try, go, 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 do, 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 do. Work, 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 work. Have you ever, have you ever realized that every other major religion says, this is what you have to do to get to God. But Christianity says, this is what God has done to get to you. Jesus, the one in this story, the one in this text, the one telling this parable, he's the one who lives the perfect life. He's the one who lives the life that you and I couldn't. He's the one who dies on the cross in your place for your sins and rises from the death. He's the one who's alive and well today. So this question about eternal life is, it's not about something that you achieve. It's really about something that you receive. And it's by the grace of God. It's only by Jesus. It's by looking to him. It's by believing and trusting in his finished work, what he's already accomplished for you on your behalf. Paul says it elsewhere in Ephesians 2.8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of work, so that no one will boast. It's only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ is the way eternal life is received. I have a friend who uh, recently became a Christian. He grew up in a religious background where they told him that he had to do a lot of things to get God's love, right? So he would attend classes and give money, and his parents would take him to these various religious institutions. And then after about junior high or high school, he said, you know what, I'm out of here. I don't feel any kind of fulfillment. I don't feel any kind of life. I don't know why I'm doing this. I feel burdened. I feel guilty. I'm out of this. I'm checking out of religion altogether. In God's great providence, we, uh, I befriended him, and through various church programs and means and conversations, God at some point saved him, and he became a Christian, and now he's walking with the Lord, right? But even now, in his young state of being a Christian, he's still having a difficult time understanding this, this concept of grace. So through several months of prayer and conversations and giving him a book and going through various scriptures, we started talking about the grace of God, saying, hey, look, there's nothing that you have to do to earn this love. It's already given to you freely because of Christ, right? And one, I remember one night we were driving back in a car. We were having this conversation about God's grace, and he said, you know, I, just, I still don't think I get it, right? He's like, no, God forgives me for everything that I've ever done and there's nothing that I need to do to earn God's love at all. Right? He's like, you know, I still don't get grace. And then after he said that, I said, actually, you're starting to get it. You're starting to get it. That's exactly right. There's nothing that you have to do to earn God's love because Jesus has already done that on your behalf. It's the grace of God. Right? And so Jesus looks at this guy and he replies, and even though he's the expert in the Old Testament law, he doesn't say, well, you idiot, you don't know this by now? You're asking me about the eternal life? Haven't you read the first five books of the Bible, 7, 8, 10, 12, 15 times? Right? Jesus is not like that. Even though this guy's trying to trap Jesus, Jesus looks at him with humility and patience. He says, okay. In verse 26, he says to him, what is written in the law? 
how do you read it, right? So Jesus is asked a question, and then he answers with a question, typical Jesus fashion, right? It's like, hey, I need to an answer, and Jesus asks another question. It's like, no, just tell me the answer. I don't, I don't think about it. Just give it to me. Um, this is not something that Jesus, um, this was not out of the ordinary for him. He did this a lot. If you, if you read the Gospels, at one point he sees a guy who's blind. His name is Bartimaeus. And finally, after screaming super loud for a long time, he gets Jesus' attention, and Jesus looks at him and says, hey, what do you want me to do for you? John chapter 5, Jesus sees a guy who's been an invalid for 38 years. I've had Achilles tendon problem for three years now, and it's almost unbearable. And this guy in John chapter 5 has been an invalid for 38 years, longer than some of you have been alive, including myself, right? And he looks at him and he says, do you want me to heal you? At one point, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? It's not so much that Jesus needs an answer so much as he wants you to see. It's not so much that he's trying to get to your mind as much as he's trying to get to your heart. See, Jesus asks questions because he's not just about transactions. He's about relationships. He wants to know you. If you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to have a relationship with him. Right? He died for you. He rose for you. He's alive and well today. And he's asking you this question today. If you were to ask him, how can you receive eternal life? It's through him. Right? When Jesus went from Capernaum or Jerusalem or other villages around the Palestinian area, he didn't just get people in line with like, you know, mad cow disease and leprosy and those who were sick and just say, hey, look, I'm, I'm here. I'm just going to, you know, say a big shout. And once I say a shout, you're going to be healed. He didn't do that. He's quiet. He's intimate. Sometimes he only picks one person out of a huge crowd. Because he wants to talk to them. He wants to have a relationship with them. He's trying to get at their heart. And even though this guy is prideful, Jesus is still doing the same with him. God is showing the mercy, the grace, the attributes of God in this conversation with this lawyer. And uh, the lawyer replies, and he says it perfectly. He answers the question perfectly. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly do this and you will live. He answers the, the, the question with uh, two different Old Testament texts. We look at this guy again, and he asked about who is my neighbor in verse 29. Over and over and over again, you can see in the story that this guy struggles with pride. right? But I can't even beat this guy up because I struggle with pride too. right? That's, that's my biggest fault. I'm, I'm the guy who says, oh, you're reading the NIV version of the Bible? Don't you know about the ESV version of the Bible? You know, like, aren't you, you're not doing evangelism, you're not reading a lot, you're not doing this, you're not doing that, right? Just critical, I can be that way, right? I remember after graduating college, I thought, man, I'm, this degree here, this degree here, I'm going to take on the world, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm ready to do things, and it's like, I didn't even realize, but in hindsight, I struggled a ton with pride and arrogance, and through trial after trial after trial after trial, the Lord humbled me, right? Like, if you're, if you're struggling with pride, the Lord might humble you to wake you up, to show you that he's the boss, that he's in charge, that he's God, right? We're not. And um, through, this, through my life, I can see myself in this story. I can see myself, I can identify with the lawyer. And uh, so it's, it's tempting to look at these stories in the Bible. It's tempting to see uh, David you know, commit adultery on Bathsheba. It's tempting to see Noah and everything that he did. It's tempting to see Abraham and give up his wife twice. It's tempting for us to read the Old Testament or the New Testament and see guys mess up and say, 
look at you, you messed up. But the reality is, is that we can't just read these scriptures. We need to let these scriptures read us. You have to find yourself in this parable. And I would say that I'm just like this lawyer. And their dialogue continues in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? If you look at the original language for the word justify, it means to make righteous or to earn approval. So what the, what the lawyer is trying to do is trying to make some people his non-neighbors because he doesn't want to love them and care for them or any way. He's trying to justify himself outside of the grace of God. So instead of looking to grace and looking to Christ, he's saying, you know what? I don't really want that. I want to earn it myself. What do I need to do? Again, he's trying to justify himself, but we can, we can beat him up or we can look at ourselves in the text and see that we do the same thing. Right? We try to justify ourselves through uh, social media statistics, like how we look on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, how people perceive us online. Or we can justify ourselves through money and bank account and success and our accomplishments. Or how's my job doing? If I could just get to this point, then I'll be fine. Once I graduate, then I'll be good. Once we get pregnant, then we'll be good. Right? We can try to find something other than God to justify us. I know some of you people here today that you're single, Right, you're single, you're just like, man, if I can just get married, then I'll be good, all my problems will be solved. Right? And married people are laughing right now because you're like, that ain't true at all. Right? I know some of us single people, we think that. We're just like, man, if I can just get married, get a ring on this, be good to go, right? We think that way. Single people think, right? We think that way, right? Or yeah, so yeah, yeah. Or or some of you married, you think, man, if I can just get pregnant, if I could just get this, or if I can just get that. What is that one thing that you daydream about? What is that one thing that you think, man, if I can just get that, then I'll be fine? Whatever that, that is, is actually that which you're worshiping. That's what you're putting above God. You're elevating a gift above the giver. It's a lie that we all believe. We think that if I can just get this or get that, then I'll be fine. We need God's grace. We need the gospel. We need to go back and over and over and over again to the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's already done on our behalf and learn, hey, look, I don't need to look outward. I don't need to look inward. I just need to look upward to Christ and see what he's already done, and I know I'm justified by his grace alone. Not my personal achievements, not my accomplishments, not what my family and friends think about me, only by the grace of God. Yet we have another question from this lawyer, round two, if you will, and he says again, uh, who is my neighbor? And that's where Jesus comes in, and he answers with a parable. So this is why we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is why one of the most popular preeminent stories in the Bible comes from is because an arrogant guy who's a religious scholar asks a question about who's my neighbor. So Jesus says, okay, you still don't get it. Let me, let me give you this parable. And he says this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sat on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor? And he said, 
said, um, the man who fell among robbers, he said, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The story of amazing love about this Samaritan who comes in and helps this guy who's robbed. You have to understand some context between Samaritans and Jews. This lawyer was a Jew, right? So Jesus makes this, the hero of the story a Samaritan to shock him, to wake him up. Samaritans, uh, back in that day, rejected the writings of the Old Testament prophets. Um, Samaritans were hated because they were idol worshipers, proud, haughty, and traitors. Samaritans were hated by Jews because they were corrupt pagans, unintelligent, and didn't know their Bibles well. Likewise, the Jews were hated by Samaritans. They thought they were too strong. They thought they were too much of a bully. They thought they were a threat to their survival. So Jesus, in this story, says the good Samaritan to the lawyer listening. It'd be like saying the good terrorist. He knows, Jesus knows that this lawyer doesn't like Samaritans. So he says the good Samaritans to wake him up. He says, okay, you want to make some people that not your neighbors? I'm going to make someone you hate, the hero of the story, just to wake you up even more and show you that you need to love people and serve them. So he's trying to wake this guy up. He's trying to show him that his neighbor is not just Samaritans or Jews or people that you like or people that you don't like or pe- black people or white people or per- people in Ferguson or people in Baltimore or people wherever. Jesus is trying to say, hey, look, your neighbor is everyone and you should love everyone. And the more you come to understand who you are in Christ, the more you're able to love people and serve them well. If we, if we look deeply into this story, what we see is deep, deep, radical love that will shake us. This, the Samaritan had compassion on this guy who was robbed. He helped him with his wounds. He poured on him wine and oil. He used his own animal and took him to an inn. He gave up his money for him. What's the point of such a detailed story by Jesus? The point is lavish love that hurts, that costs. In this story, we learn that love can be uncomfortable. Loving people can cost money. Loving people can be inconvenient. It can be difficult. It can cost time. This Samaritan helped this guy and really didn't expect anything in return at all. He just loved him unconditionally. I have, uh, I have a guy at work that I work with, and uh, I, I really feel like um, that the Lord is really testing my patience and how much I love people, and he's revealing to me that I'm not that loving of a person. Uh, I, I work in finance and accounting, and there's a guy who shares a cubicle uh, right next to me. Right? Love the guy, great guy, works really hard, we work together, but every single day he talks to me for like two hours. Right? Like I'm an introvert. Like if, after talking to me for like 15 minutes, I need to take a nap or something. You know, I'm tired. I'm just like, look, man, I got, I'm, I'm busy. I'm going to have to stay late again. I know that you were a bodybuilder back in your 20s. I know that you were super strong. I know that this, that, and the other. Like, I love hearing these stories, right? But I'm learning through my own impatience that, hey, look, I, I actually don't want to talk to you right now. I just want to do my own job. I just want to do my work, get out of here, and leave. God's showing me that I need to grow in love, that I need to be more like the Good Samaritan. Maybe you have uh, someone in your home that you live with. You're like, man, hey, loving this person can be difficult or someone at school, or someone at work, or someone around you, you'll find that the longer you become a Christian, that God will providentially put people around you to teach you things, to show you things, to reveal sin in your heart, to reveal sin in your life, to crush your idols, to show you that you need Jesus. I'm learning as a guy who works in a cubicle 
and, and finance and accounting that I need to grow in my love because I'm struggling with this. But the Samaritan, he looks at a guy who wasn't going to give him anything in return and says, hey, look, I'm going to pour out everything for you and help you out. The point of this story in this context is lavish love for someone that you don't even expect to return. The lawyer asks in verse 29, who is my neighbor? Jesus, again, gives a question to his answer and says, which of these three proved to be the neighbor? After hearing the parable, we can conclude that in addition to Jesus' question, the best question is not, who is my neighbor, but how can I be a loving neighbor? Because your neighbor is everyone. Your neighbor includes everyone. So if you, if you leave here today and you think, you know what, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I've heard it once before, I heard it growing up in, um, in vacation Bible school, I heard it growing up in the church, it's about loving people and serving people. Yes, it, it is kind of that. It, it does have an element to that, but the main gist of this parable is trying to show us how we receive eternal life and that we're called to love everyone. Um, in, the, in the book of Luke, in, in order to understand it in its full context, we can't just, it's difficult just to take one chapter and pick a couple verses and really understand it. Uh, a lot of commentators say that you need to understand the, the book of Luke in its totality by understanding every chapter in succession. And in the, in the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says something that's stunning. He says that on Luke 9, 51, that he's going up to Jerusalem. Why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? Well, that's the place where he would eventually die on the cross in your place for your sins and rise from the dead. The man in the story who was robbed was coming down from Jerusalem. Jesus eventually would go up to Jerusalem. If you look at the story really closely and you look at every verse, verse by verse by verse, what you'll see is that this story, in some sense, is a foreshadow to what Jesus would do. Jesus was robbed. Jesus was beat. Scripture said that he was beat so bad that it was difficult to recognize him. He died on the cross, and this time no one came to help him. No Samaritan helped him. No Levite bounded up his wounds. No Levite did anything for him. Everyone overlooked him. In fact, on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What, what Jesus is doing with the story, in the real sense, is, is showing a foreshadow of what he would later do for this lawyer. That Jesus is the great and better Samaritan, who this time, no one helped him, but died alone and rose from the dead. That anyone who would turn from sin and trust him can have this eternal life. The story is a foreshadow to Jesus and what he would do. So maybe, maybe you came in here today and you thought, man, I didn't, I didn't really realize that the parable of the Good Samaritan was that deep. Or maybe you kind of look in this text and you can identify with the, the lawyer. Like, man, I'm prideful. I'm not loving my, my wife like I should. I'm not loving my kids like I should. I'm not doing what I need to do at work. I'm kind of smug. Like, if, that, maybe you think that of yourself. Maybe God's calling you to repent of your pride today and trust in Jesus to take away that in your life and your heart. Or maybe you're like the Levite and the priest and you see people around you at work who are hurt and who are hurt and broken and you feel like you haven't really been doing much to help out. Maybe God is calling you 
to love people and to serve them and strengthen them and help them just like this good Samaritan did without expecting much in return. If you expect someone to give you stuff just because you want to do good stuff to them, you're going to be disappointed. This Samaritan did it without any cost, with a lot of risk. And he shows us that true love is inconvenient and difficult. The remedy, either way, is not to try to do good works or try to work really hard or try to find interior strength within ourselves. The, the remedy for us today, whether we're struggling with pride or whether we're struggling with loving people around us, is really to look up to Jesus. He's the one that gives life. He's the one that gives joy. He's the one that gives strength. If you try to do it, if you try to love people on your own, you're just going to get burnt out and hurt and bitter. But if you look to Jesus and ask him for strength and ask him for help and study the scriptures and pray and be in Christian fellowship and be in the church, if you walk closer and deeply with him, he'll give you the energy and strength to love people and serve them. And the more that you realize who you are in Christ, the more you understand the grace of God, the the mercy of God that really doesn't make any sense because we're so sinful, the more you come to understand this beautiful, wonderful grace that's been poured out on you if you're a Christian, the more that you can love and serve people around you. So the two questions before us today in our parable are, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? The answer is, eternal life is received by Jesus Christ through what he's done. And your neighbor is everyone. So the call to us today as a church, as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, is to look to Jesus for our strength and joy, to repent of our pride, and love our neighbors around us because God in Christ has done the same thing for us. Let me pray, and then I'll invite Dylan back up. Father, we thank you for this word today. We pray, God, that we would repent of our pride. Father, I pray, help us to love people more and look to you. Jesus, I pray that you provide the strength and energy and joy to love people unconditionally, even when it hurts and even when it's difficult. I pray, God, that you help us to do this by the grace that you provide. In Jesus' name, amen.